All right, welcome everyone. We really appreciate you joining us for this important conversation. Um, it can be said that the college pro uh, preparation process is in a state of transition with questions about the rise in tuition, vocational training, and whether college um, is actually worth it. And we hope that our um, experts on the panel with me here today are able to answer some of those questions. And to provide a short introduction, we have um, Robert Spademan, who is the Interim Vice President of Enrollment at Cleveland State University. We have Angela Johnson, who is the Vice President of Access and Completion at Tri-C. Um, and we have the Vice President of Enrollment, Richard Bischoff, of Case Western Reserve University. So we'll start with rising tuition costs, which I think is one of the more important things um, that is on the mind of many high school students as they become college freshmen. Uh, it's been reported that since 1978, tuition has gone up 1,120%, outpacing every single part of the U.S. economy. So the question I pose to our panelists today is, why do you think that is? Why, what do you think is driving those costs? For those, on, for those of us on the other side of those decisions, what do you think is making college more expensive, especially compared to inflation rates of everything else in the U.S. economy? Rob, do you want to start? Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be here. Glad to see you all tonight. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's happened, certainly since the uh, Great Recession of 2008, and this is pretty national, is that uh, state governments have really felt the squeeze in terms of uh, revenue. And as a result of that, I'm in a public university. Um, support from the state has, has declined. And while it has inched back in the last several years, uh, the, the only way you could keep going was, in fact, to find new sources of revenue, one of which happened to be tuition. So yes, tuition has gone up. It is a concern to us, for sure. And uh, I think we've done some things. I think the state of Ohio has done some things. Uh, for, uh, for example, uh, <coughs> Cleveland State and a number of the other publics in Northeast Ohio now are implementing a tuition guarantee program, which means that if you come to Cleveland State next fall, you will pay the same tuition for the four years that you're a student at the university. The other thing that the state did was f forced the public universities to freeze their tuition. So we have not had an increase in the last three years. This will be the fourth year <coughs> that that happens. And on top of that, we're putting the tuition guarantee. So there's some signs of hope there, at least on the public side. All right. Rick, do you want to talk about the private side a little bit? Uh, sure. Um, if, you, if you actually look at the rising cost of higher education and you look at the rising cost uh, within the service economy within the United States, you'll find that they, they're moving in very similar ways. And the reason that's the case in higher education is the vast majority of our costs are actually human costs, paying faculty, paying staff, uh, driven by healthcare costs. Um, I can't speak about all the way back to 1978. Uh, I think I was probably in about fifth grade okay. at that point in time. Um, but certainly in, in more recent years, health insurance costs are a big factor. Uh, increasing government regulation and mandates that we must meet uh, with increased staff, that's an issue for, for us every single year 
they're a list of costs that are driven by regulations that we must adhere to, often requiring additional staff. The other thing that I would say is two, two big things, if you look over time, particularly if you go back, back to the mid-70s, college is a much better place today than it was many years ago, um, in part driven by the kinds of housings that, that the student have, uh, class sizes on campus, and you'll also find over time graduation rates are much better today than they were many years ago, and that's been a real driver for colleges and universities across the country, is how do we make sure that the students that we enroll actually graduate and earn a degree? Angela, do you want to address the question? Yeah, good evening. I, I think, um, you know, we talked about quite a bit of it. I think the other thing around costs, when you think about programs and technology, so technology does drive a lot of what we have to invest in because programs are changing, technology is changing pretty quickly, and so adding to some of the costs that you mentioned from a budget perspective also includes some of those things around the technology investment, the investment in um, this, this, obviously the education system, what students need, what services students need um, to be successful. We do a lot at Cuyahoga from a wraparound service perspective and doing a lot of things that are helping coaching and mentoring students, so certainly costs associated with that. But when you think about some of the technical programs that are certainly high demand areas, like nursing, some other technology, IT, some of the equipment associated with that are certainly some of the high costs that we kind of see. And certainly not suggesting that we put all of our costs into our technology, but I think you mentioned quite a bit of when you think about that from an institutional budget perspective, but things that are certainly necessary to provide students a great education. All right, uh, Rob, you mentioned how um, tuition rose a little bit with the, or a lot, with the recession. And I want to ask you, as the economy recovers, or as we get better to a, uh, closer to a growing economy, do you see um, tuition rates reducing with that, or do you envision tuition rates actually reducing as that um, becomes a reality? I don't think we'll see them reduce. Um, but I think that the, the, the real important thing here, the thing that we know we can control at CSU, uh, is uh, time to graduation. And so when you start looking at schools, look at how they talk about that and what they're doing. My colleague here mentioned some of the things that are happening over at Tri-C to help students progress through in four years. Because right. one of the things to the question of debt is that not many students are getting through in four years anymore. And that's, that's a change. I mean, I went to school a million years ago and everybody got through in four years. Uh, today, five and six years um, are quite common. So we have a number of things that we've done, like capping the number of hours to a degree in most of our programs at 120, and making it easy for students to sort of follow a path and stay on that path, which really helps toward the cost at the end of the day. All right, do you wanna, Angela, do you wanna talk a little bit about how Tri-C sure. is addressing um, those costs. Yeah. So, so there was a mention of tuition guarantee, which we started at Cuyahoga three years ago. Um, luckily, as, as was mentioned, the state had not increased tuition. 
um, in that time. So certainly students were locked into a tuition or a tuition freeze. But we've done some other things very similar to, to what was mentioned. So beyond the tuition guarantee, what we're looking at from a tuition perspective is about how long students uh, stay with us, trying to accelerate completion. And we have several tuition incentive pro programs to help students complete. We have a program called 15 Plus Perks, where we're trying to get students to take 15 credit hours per semester, helps them complete in two years. But what we recognize at our, our, you know, our community college is, is that most students, 60% of our students attend part-time. So we know two years isn't necessarily how long it'll take them to complete, but certainly programs that help them to complete timely, offering some tuition discounts if students choose to enroll in the summer semester, so helping students enroll all year. We, we do that particularly because we know there's national statistics that really demonstrate students who enroll consecutively are more likely to complete and to complete sooner. And certainly that's what we're trying to get students to think about so that when they do have to think about loan investment, that they're not there as long as they, longer than they need to be, not borrowing more than they need to be, and certainly thinking about the return on investment and getting into the workforce once they complete. All right, I'm glad you mentioned the workforce. Rick, I'll pose a different question to you. Um, Ohio students graduate with the, uh, an average of $30,239 in debt. Um, with so many people going into jobs with stagnant wages, what, do you, what are your suggestions to prevent students graduating with the, without this burden of debt, and what is Case doing in that area? I, I think today that my mic is going all over the place here. Uh, I, I think today that students and parents really need to think about what am I going to do after graduation? And that needs to be part of the equation. Uh, if you're coming to Case Western Reserve and you're going to major in engineering and you're going to go out into the engineering field, you can expect you know, salaries at a certain level. That impacts when you look at that debt question, you know, what is reasonable for me to be able to handle uh, at, at that level. And this is very different. I went to college in 1985 uh, and started working in college admissions uh, immediately after I graduated in 89, in four years. Uh, and w when I talked to families in, in the early 90s, there was this kind of understanding, well, you know, if you go to college and you do well and you graduate, you know, you're going to be fine. And families today need to be much more thoughtful about what that path is. Are you going to go, go on to graduate or professional school? Are you going directly into the job market? If I'm going to go directly into the job market, what are reasonable expectations of salaries? Um, and, and, and kind of over the kind of 10 years post-graduation, what are reasonable expectations of salary growth during that time? The money piece of going to college today is much, much more complicated than it was 20 or 30 years ago, without a doubt. Uh, Angela, I pose the same question to you. How do how do you I try to see um, address that issue with students? Yeah, you know, he really touched on it. One of the things that we've been trying to do is helping students start with that end in mind and thinking about the longevity of the area or major that they're trying to go into, but not think about going to college as a major, but thinking about the job they'll have when they leave and what's the salary associated with that. And we actually help students think about and map out how long they plan to be enrolled. Again. If, most of our students are part-time. Do they plan to really go part-time the whole time? Will they be here three years or four years because they are part-time? Most of our students have family um, commitments and things like that, but we want them to think about how long they'll be with us, how much they'll borrow for the cost of their program, what does their repayment look like when they graduate because there's multiple payment options. Very 
com complex options that students have to choose from when they think about repayment, but really trying to understand as they're thinking about their major, thinking about their job and their career, can they afford to pay the loan back that they're, they're planning to borrow, but thinking about that at the very beginning of their program. All right. So recently, both locally and nationally, um, with public and private entities, there's been a push for more vocational training and for more two to four year programs for um, like white, white working class um, labor jobs instead of going through the typical college route. And I want to ask you, Rob, first, uh, what is your response to that um, as a representative of a university and why should people, even with these more viable options, still go through the typical college route? Yeah, well, I think, I think the easy answer is that college is not, a four-year college is not for everybody. And you have to be honest about that. Um, I have an old house on the west side of Cleveland, and every time I need a plumber, it's a pretty expensive uh, thing to, to happen. And those are people who are trained in those vocations, and they do quite well from a financial standpoint. So I think we have to say up front that not every child is prepared or ready or should go to college. Uh, that said, um, we try our hardest when students come to us to talk about the options that we have and to talk about their responsibilities and to train them about financial literacy as well. Because a lot of times the, the, the generation today is not schooled in those areas. Their parents have taken care of that up until now. And they get to college and think that it's just a, a fun time. And they have a role in this too. We have a tool called Grad Ready that is a financial literacy tool that uh, reaches 80% in the last year of our freshmen who work through sort of the puts and takes of borrowing money and loans and where to get other monies from and so forth and what kind of career their major will lead to even stating the kind of salary they can expect right out of school. And that we have found to be very, very helpful. All right, Angela, uh, I know that Tri-C is also invested in creating some of those, um, or pr uh, putting on some of those vocational programs for people. So could you explain a little bit of how Tri-C like, manages the two different tracks? So we, we like to think of our, our engagement in the educational options for students as what we call internally we refer to it as one door so there's one door with many options so we have options for short-term certificate programs that fall into our non-credit um, categories we have some in our credit programs that are short-term and then we also have our our degree programs which are multiple about 70 or so different programs but we really wanted students to think about um, what options they have based on their individual interests and sometimes it's reaching training and coming back because they've already been in the workforce or they're changing their career or they're changing their field. I think part of the challenge with some of the non-credit programs just, just is funding. So from a funding perspective, most of the financial aid that's available to students are only eligible for our credit programs. We don't get funding for some of our um, non-credit programs. We do fund those through our foundation, however, through some scholarship opportunities, but really trying to help students understand the differences and the distinctions and really making that an opportunity for students thinking about how long they really have based on what they need. I mean, we have programs as short as six months, some that's as long as two years. All right. Um, so we'll move to a different issue a little bit. I know the two of you mentioned uh, the state putting on tuition controls for public universities, so I'll pose this question to Rick. Do you think those tuition controls and tuition guarantees are actually addressing the issues of tuition um, or of student debt, or they're simply a Band-Aid on the issue? 
Well, I think in thinking about tuition, we need to think about tuition and we need to think about financial aid. Because what families are really concerned about is how much do they have to pay. And whether it's public colleges and universities or private colleges and universities, two-year or four-year, there are often financial, financial aid opportunities available. Uh, if you look at the private college and university market, at what, market, what you see over the past you know, decade is, yes, costs are going up, but financial aid is also going up. And at many institutions, financial aid is going up faster than costs are rising. Um, so, you know, regardless of what that tuition is, the question needs to be, what's my cost going to be? Every college and university in the country is required to have what is called a net price calculator on their website. And any family can go to that net price calculator, put in some fairly basic information about their financial situation, and get an estimate of what that college is really going to cost them. And you know, it, it's, it's really imperative, you know, especially if you're early in this process, to spend some time going out to, cut, whether it's two-year, four-year, public, private, uh, to get a sense of what is this going to cost me. Um, there, there are families for whom Case Western Reserve, uh, with a very hefty tuition price tag, is less expensive in terms of the family's cost than a public university might be. That's not every family. Uh, but for some families, that's going to be the case. And unless you do the work, you don't know that. Okay. Um, so, Angela, uh, Governor Kasich has been pretty forceful about pushing tuition controls and um, pu putting caps on textbook costs to students. Uh, and Governor or Attorney General Mike DeWine convened an advisory board on student loans. As a member of that um, advisory board, could you give us a little rundown on the findings and how do you think Mike DeWine, if he is, uh, becomes governor, would actually act on any of those? Certainly, I don't want to speculate what he, what he might do, um, but but I, I did participate in the task force, but primarily focused on um, there were three areas that we really looked at. Some of them were debt associated with institutions, public institutions that are required to turn debt over to the state if students don't you know pay um, the debt that's incurred at the institution. One area was also looking at student loans and affordability around that. But part of that student loan, kind of the spinoff for that, was really about the financial education. What, what I suspect would come from some of the work that we did on the task force and certainly his interests around um, consumer information, lots of folks around loan consumer information. I worked with them to develop a, a very comprehensive website through the Attorney General's office to really help students as consumers understand student loan debt, understand situations where they believe they may have um, situations to have their student loan debt forgiven, if you will, based on in institutional um, situations that have occurred at institutions, but I really think the focus will be on college affordability. I really think that, so, so we talked a little bit about tuition associated with college affordability, but really thinking about the whole cost. Lots of times we do focus on tuition, but there's so many other expenses, things that we think about that are the indirect costs of college education, room and board, transportation, all the costs associated with going to school books and fees and all those kind of things. But I think the focus from, from that administration, should he be the successful candidate, will be on um, education around student debt, education requirements, particularly um, 
perhaps for schools around financial education. I think lots of schools in the state are doing a lot with that, but really trying to think about how do we mandate that. And I think I'll just share just because as I'm thinking about this, so beyond the state um, perspective, there's certainly a lot of federal legislation that's being proposed right now as the Higher Education Act is being reauthorized or considered for reauthorization, some things that you may see that's coming forward in the PROSPER Act and the suggestions there are, are a lot about student consumer information, requirements for counseling and advising, and really holding schools accountable for getting the right information in students' hands to make really good informed consumer decisions. And I certainly think that's something that schools really do try to do a good job at, but really thinking about how do we make students more informed as consumers get the best information they can as they're making these decisions so they don't leave the institution either with debt that they didn't believe or knew that they had, or in a situation where they're confused about options and repayment options and kind of how to, how to go about that. But I think we'll see it at the state level, but certainly asking folks to kind of consider and watch it at the federal level, because that's probably gonna happen a little bit quicker. All right, Rob, I would pose a slightly different question to you. What do you expect to see, um, or if any changes, on the state and federal level yeah. that would affect well, tuition I, rates and loans? Uh, and I think she covered most of them. I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball. I guess if I did, I wouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> but our hope would be that in the next administration in the state of Ohio that we have support for more support from the state for higher education. You cannot discount, and this impacts everybody in this room, that Ohio uh, it has a very low college graduation rate when compared to other states, and to attract business, th there's a tremendous gap of college-educated people that companies, particularly technology companies, need and want. I mean, we have a, a, a very robust engineering school at CSU, and the, the graduates out of those programs and the various disciplines are, are making huge salaries as they step right out of CSU. And it's just because the demand in, in the Cleveland area for engineering-oriented companies and services is so great, and they can't find the people. That's a statewide issue that we need to solve. And so when you tie all this together, as you said, it's a complex issue. We hope at the end of the day that the political landscape will change in our favor in that regard. All right. Um, so I'll pose this question to Rick first. How do you, what are some deficiencies in the college freshmen that you're receiving or lacks of not lack of knowledge um, that you wish that high schools provided to parents and to students before the college application process began? So you want me to talk about how deficient our first-year students are? <laughs> I, I love our first-year students. I love all of our students. Um, boy, that, that's tough. Um, I, I do think, let, let me kind of turn this a little bit because what we see on our campus, and as I gather with my colleagues from around the country, when we're talking about incoming students, it, it isn't about academic preparation. It isn't about kind of financial education. It's really about kind of resilience, independence. Um, and, you know, I'm a parent of a 10th grade boy. Uh, and, you know, as a parent, kind of the, the things that we do, the things that our friends do uh, to protect our children and give them incredible lives, uh, you know, are different than they were. 
Uh, we work very hard so that our children don't have you know, disappointment in their life. Uh, we hear that, you know, related to the college admissions process where, you know, often if a student doesn't get in, it's, you know, the first major disappointment that they've had to face. And that plays out on college campuses uh, when a student doesn't get a grade that they expect. We now have, you know, parents who are calling faculty members uh, because they're unhappy with something that, you know, has happened in the classroom. That didn't used to happen. Um, and so our job on college campuses is we really have to, you know, we have to meet students where they are and provide the services that wrap around support that they need, but we need to get them further so that when they're going off into the job as a Cleveland State graduate, perhaps, um, you know, their mom isn't calling the boss uh, to talk about, you know, Johnny's performance review. That would be bad. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with Rick that there's a, a number of things students have to step up to in terms of responsibility. And there's a number of pitfalls as you go through college, too. Changing your major does not help, for example. And, and so you get students that wander around that landscape and end up with a lot of debt and a lot of extra hours that don't count toward anything. Um, students need to learn to raise their hand if they're having trouble in a class. and, and avail themselves of the wraparound services that we're all talking about here tonight. So there's a number of things that students can do that we talk to them about when they come to CSU that's part of their success path. And, you know, they need to get involved in something outside of the classroom. That's, there's research that supports that helps students progress from year to year. And they need to find a group of students that are in their same major so they can go through the experience together and help each other out. Those are key factors that sound like soft, squishy stuff, but can be really, really important here. Right, enjoy. So, so many of my students don't come from high school, right? So my average age of my students is 27. And so working with adult learners is certainly a different um, experience for us. We certainly have students who come right out of high school that, that join Tri-C and um, with plans to finish their two-year degree, transfer to one of our partner universities here, but, but really thinking a little bit differently about um, how we see things in the world as adults and how our students as adult learners and the information they get, because they're not getting it from high school. They may have been students who started in, um, at 18, 19 years old, took some time off, and then they're coming back to us of a whole different situation, whole different life circumstances. But really thinking about what do the students need, as you said, meeting students where they are, and what do they need at that time. And so some of the things that we try to do is provide information to students just in time what information they need at the right time, the right information as they're progressing along and recognizing that everybody's gonna be in a very different place. What they know, what they think they know, what experience they've had at other institutions, because we certainly find many of our students have had college experiences before they've come to us and they're either restarting or what we call reverse transferring and really maybe rechanging um, their major, their career and, and looking at things that way. We certainly wish we had an opportunity to talk to every single student get all the information as they needed. Sometimes what we find is giving students too much information all at the same time is, is also a challenge because it's overwhelming. It, it, it's not the information they need at the time they need it, but really trying to do that in different, different avenues along their journey. 
That brings up an important point that I'd like you to address first, Rob. We've talked about the role of the college, the high school, the state, and the parents, but what would you, how would you define the role of the student in the application process and preparing for paying for college um, in the student loan arena? How would you define it? So um, selecting a college, I think, is a, is a very complex process today. And um, there's a lot of different stakeholders that weigh in to the student, their parents, their friends. We know that Gen Z is very peer-to-peer -peer oriented, for example. We know that students compete to get accepted to as many schools as possible. And today, they apply to six or eight schools on average, for example. So the complexity of the process is that there are a number of schools in the mix, even at the end. My own uh, director of admissions at CSU is away today with her daughter, who's attending orientation at a school in another state, and she tells me that that's one of three schools that they're going to attend orientation to. So they've got award letters, they've done the math, but still can't figure out what the choice is. So you have to rack and stack all those factors. I brought along what is a generic college selection workbook that we put together at CSU. And you're welcome to grab one of these. It, it allows you to take notes when you go around to these schools on everything from the academic side to campus life. And so for every person, it's a very individual decision at the end that makes sense for them. Angela, I know you mentioned how students going to Tri-C are a little different than the traditional four-year college. And could you explain their role and their responsibilities a little in that process? Explain the student's role yeah, in the, the process? Role. You know, I think um, that part of the student's role is, is about how the institution has prepared the student. So a lot of times we talk about college-ready students, and I think sometimes we need to think about student-ready colleges, right? And kind of reverse that a little bit and say, are the colleges ready for the students? And recognizing who the students are and providing that service. And so um, I, I'd like to think, as, as was mentioned, that our students who come to us are making some decisions about multiple options and we just rose to the top. I'd like to think of it that way and that students are sitting down, looking at their award letters, looking at their, their academic commitments, their um, financial commitments and making some real tough decisions around that. And I'm sure that's what they're doing because they're, they're thinking about all the different schools they apply to. You can see that when students complete the FAFSA application that we're not the only school they listed on the application and they're trying to really figure out the best fit. I think what students find is the best um, environment for them, for them to make some decisions and choices about that really fits their needs. But I certainly like to think about time is important, and students are thinking about the best opportunity for them to advance their, their um, academic career to, to complete as quickly as they can. But I also think given, you know, being a community college, one of the things students are also thinking about for us is flexibility time availability, they're working around a lot of things in their life schedule, and, and they're primarily place-bound. So they're going to be here in the city of Cleveland, they're going to be here in one of our surrounding campuses, and so their decision is a local decision. So certainly it could be Cuyahoga, or it could be Cleveland State, or it could be Case, but most of their decisions are about being in this area, being in this vicinity, vicinity in Northeast Ohio. And so part of that is for us to be ready for the students when they get there, and not making the students make some of those decisions on their own, but really help them be prepared and be a more of a um, student-ready college. Okay, uh, and before we get to audience questions, I think I'll pose one more question to everyone. 
What is one, starting with you, Rick, what is one piece of advice you give to either a current college student or um, a current high school student on the entire college application and um, attendance process? Um, I think, you know, my piece of advice for students would be to really engage in the process. Um, it's, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's work because it shouldn't feel like work. Um, it is, you know, for many students, an incredible opportunity where you have kind of amazing options in front of you. You know, I, I work with students, you know, from all over the country, all around the world, and it, it, it's an opportunity to really think about, you know, what am I interested in? What kind of community do I want to be a part of? Where, you know, do I want to be in Cleveland? Do I want to be halfway across the country or halfway around the world? And, you know, for young people who are going through this process, it is the time when there are the most options available to you. If I were to go home and tell my wife and son that I really wanted to go and live in, in San Francisco, they would say, awesome. You have a good time there in San Francisco. We're not moving. Uh, the, the, the kind of older you get, the more obligations you have, the narrower those choices become. And so embrace this for the, the amazing opportunity that it is. Robert? I think I would tell um, current students to uh, go see your advisor. Unsaid <laughs> uh, on, on here is the notion of staying on track and getting it done in four years. And these are the people that will keep you straight. Make sure you take the right courses and stick to the plan kind of thing. Uh, for prospective students, I agree with Rick. I think you have to get involved in the process. I would say start early to my earlier comments about how complex it is. And you know, really do your homework so that as you get into that senior year, you're excited about your choice, not exhausted by your choice because you waited too long and you don't like what's in front of you from the six colleges that you applied to. I think I would tell students to engage and, and explore. I think sometimes what we find is our students are pretty amazed when they come to our campus and see the opportunities that we have because they've done, like many schools, most of the information is online. They've applied online. They've gotten an email that they've gotten accepted. They've done a lot of their financial aid information online. And they may not have spent some time at the, at the campus to really see and explore what the campus has to offer. To have a college visit and really figure out what opportunities are there and what are some of the resources that are available to them. I mean, you'd be surprised how many students still don't know that we provide some uh, lots of free services like free tutoring. That's really unheard of at many colleges, but we certainly provide that. A lot of community colleges do, however. But when, when we think about the engage and explore, it's really giving them the opportunity to really kind of dive into this, explore the opportunities and, and options for them, and really make some really good decisions around that. All right, a round of applause for our panelists. So this is the time where everyone gets to participate, or almost everyone. Um, the audience mic is over here, so just come up and ask your question. We hope it's an actual question and not a speech. <laughs> I see Dan approaching the microphone. Speech, <laughs> speech. I'll just, I'll just get it started. Um, and I, is it worth it? Is college worth it today? Everybody needs to answer except for Teolu because she's going to college. <laughs> I hope it is. Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, and I'm, I'm very passionate about this answer. Um, in spite of the debt 
and the cost and so forth that we've talked about, there's no question that a college degree leads to a better life. And that's earnings, whether it's over the course of your life, that's a million dollars plus to someone who doesn't have a four-year degree, or weekly earnings, that's 40% higher. That's a lower risk for unemployment, all proven. That's even lifespan. A better educated person tends to lead a healthier life, and that adds typically seven years to somebody's lifespan. And not to mention the contribution to society as a whole by having an educated workforce that not only attracts businesses that bring all kinds of jobs, but helps lift all boats. So I, I'm very passionate about that question. I appreciate you want everybody to answer, but I think he answered all of those questions in his, his one comment. I think he, he's really captured all of those reasons why it's important. But, but I think when we think about the job industry, there's, um, there is, again, no question that there will be certain credentials, be it certificates or uh, degrees, that are going to be needed from the, from the workforce perspective that is changing so much. The, the economy and the technology is changing so fast and so much that without a college degree, you will have a, students will have a hard time finding an employment that will be something they want for a suitable lifestyle. So I'll answer from, from a personal perspective. I was a first generation college yeah. student. Um, of the six children in my family, uh, I was the first of two of us that went to college, the only one to graduate. Uh, I had Pell Grants uh, when I was in college that supported me. I borrowed $15,000, uh, graduated in 1989. That was a lot of money at that point in time. And college changed my life. And it is the most rewarding thing of the work that I do now is to see the students that we work with, you know, come and the opportunities that are open, you know, not just from an employment perspective, uh, but you know, the experiences that, that are open to students kind of through that college experience and through the opportunities that they have when they graduate. You know, is it worth it? Absolutely, positively. I have never regretted a day the money that I, that I borrowed to pay for me to go to college. Next question. Uh, I have two conflicting questions that are, they don't have anything to do with each other, so I'm trying to figure out which one I want to ask. Um, this one, I think there's been a lot written recently about the uh, concept of the student as a customer, as a consumer, rather than a learner and a scholar. And I think you see that reflected on, on the modern college campus a lot with beautiful facilities and awesome rec centers. So <laughs> I just, <laughs> that didn't exist when I was there. But I want to know if that's impacted, if you see that impacting your campus culture uh, in the form of student behavior, learning habits, and then also responses from staff and faculty. I would say at CSU, we actually call that student success, our translation of that concept of the customer as a student. And that's really changed the focus of many parts of the university to really see it through the eyes of the student and, and provide the necessary support as they go on their journey. Yeah. I, I certainly think that um, from a student as a customer perspective is that students have choices. Students have choices of what institutions they plan to attend, where they spend their money, where they invest their time, and certainly their, their money. And so from a customer perspective, certainly it's important that we treat students that way. To your question related to facilities, and um, it is a part of the unlearning environment. We certainly want people to be 
feel safe on campus to have a, a clean and um, well-maintained learning environment. So some of those things certainly are really important. From a facilities perspective, you certainly have to have the right engagement and the learning that really impacts the learning and the pedagogy as it relates to how students learn, how they engage, and how they behave. Certainly when you think about um, we behave differently in, in nicer environments, if you will, versus those that we don't really care that much about. And we certainly want to have an impression with our students and anybody in our community that we, we care about the work that we do, we care about students, we care about student success, and we certainly care about the environment that we bring our students to, to, to learn and grow with us. I have nothing to add. Okay. Next question. Okay. Part of my question was stolen. My question is, what part do each of these three items have in driving up tuition costs? Number one, the increased regulations from Washington and the administrators needed to provide them along with the additional services that they require. Number two, the improved dorms. I was in a, a triple and a double and received a reduction in room and board. And number three, increased facilities at the colleges. When I graduated from University of Maine in 1974, they had neither a swimming pool or a hockey arena. So I think the question <laughs> um, is like how do each of those, like each of the three uh, facilities or amenities affect the cost of tuition? C can I change my mind and go back and answer the last question? <laughs> I think you can do both. Uh, I, I mean, all three of those things are drivers. Um, the, you know, what, what I guess I would argue from a university perspective, uh, and you know, I went to college in 1985, uh, my dorm room was amazing. Uh, it was probably about 10 by 12, two of us in the room, no discount. Uh, and the cinder block was the most amazing beige you've ever seen. Uh, and, you know, on many college campuses, that's not the experience today. Part of what I think colleges and universities, this often gets pitched as the, you know, kind of arms race of amenities, and the climbing wall is the kind of, yeah. Uh, straw man that, that is put up there. Um, part of what colleges and universities have realized is that our students are whole people and they do need a place to work out and the, the dorms that are being built today, I, I'm sorry, I should say residence halls, uh, my, my housing folks would be very thank angry you, with you. me if I called them <laughs> dorms. Uh, you know, the residence halls that we're building today, are they nicer? Yes. But what is the, the single biggest driver of the increased cost of a new residence hall today? It's not no, you know, that they put you know, plasterboard over the cinder block these days. It's that there are more public spaces, more community spaces. Because student, students aren't happy when they come back and they go into their tiny little dorm room and they don't have the public places to hang out with friends and, and to connect with the community. And if, if, if you look at graduation rates, you know, even at public universities, you know, today versus 30 years ago, we're all graduating, you know, more of our students. And it's not an accident, it's the intentionality. You know, whether you call it student success, you know, what, however you want to you do that, being in college is a better experience today. Uh, when, when my students on campus complain about the dining hall, I'm like, oh, please. <laughs> 
you know, it, it is amazing compared to what college food, you know, our three choices that we had each night, and we always had cereal as the safety valve, uh, because, yeah, there was Captain Crunch at every meal on campus. You don't have to do that today. I would agree. Uh, you, you asked your question, though, about tuition. I think most of what you mentioned, though, is indirectly. Total cost. Total cost, yes. yeah. The, the, those are drivers. It's a little different in the public sector, because there are there is a capital budget that the state provides, and that helps to build certain buildings. But in our case, uh, things like the rec center and a nice student center and so forth are paid for by the students in their fees, not directly in their tuition. But to Rick's point, I mean, you, uh, I, I'm, I'm the oldest person at this table. We didn't have Wi-Fi when I went through college, okay? We didn't have half of this. Cable television was just very nascent at that time kind of thing. You know, we all had rabbit ears on our little black and white TVs that we brought to college. So, you know, whether we like it or not, our society has advanced and the standards that go with that have advanced too. I mean, when, when I, I ne it never ceases to amaze me these 15 and 16 year olds that come to our campus a little bit younger they're more interested in what kind of equipment's in the rec center and who's in our food court kind of thing than they are the academic side of the house kind of thing. And so it is, it is where we are today. All right, next question. Thank you all for being here. Um, so I apologize in advance, I have two questions. So my first question is, how you all support students with some of those indirect or hidden costs. So you mentioned books, um, transportation, emergencies that come up. So um, I know at the institution I work at, we have an emergency fund, for example. Um, and I was also wondering what you all have thought about some of the free tuition policies that have been kind of popping up around the country, like in New York and Tennessee. So I'll speak to the, the free tuition first, because certainly most of the, the literature out now that's suggesting about free tuition is around free community college, is primarily the focus in helping um, states to think about free community college. And while most of it, what we're hearing is coming from some suggestions from a federal policy suggestion, it really would be a state decision about what that looks like and how that would actually work. And so while we think that from a community college perspective, part of our work and our mission from a transfer perspective is helping students broadly think about cost, cost reduction, finish at a two-year institution, transfer to one of the four-year partners, because students are then saving money. But certainly very open and very excited about an opportunity around free college and what that really means. I think it starts with our conversation we, where we began on college affordability and really thinking about how do we really help um, with some of the challenges around disinvestment in college education and college costs from a state perspective, and what are some of the opportunities that could really help students more readily afford, uh, afford college. And I think your, your other question was about Hidden costs. Hidden costs. Hidden costs. I, you know, I think it goes back to some of the conversations around the net price calculator and being really clear with all the costs. I think what we hear about most of the time is tuition. You don't hear a lot about fees, because there are fees associated with tuition. There's some fees associated with, um, you know, cost parking fees or um, some book fees and things like that, that's really important. But I think it's, it's important to understand what the whole cost is so that, they that students and families are really making good decisions around, if you look at a school that may 
you believe the tuition, the tuition in and of itself is about, you know, $35,000 a year, but broadly, it, it's really about $10,000 because you've not calculated all the other costs. And these are things that families should be thinking about and looking at because there's some out-of-pocket costs that are associated with how they afford college as well, not necessarily just the financial aid and scholarships. But what some things that we are doing around that is we certainly have uh, a pretty broad investment from our foundation to help students with scholarships. Scholarships focus on completion and helping students make some, some decisions around acceleration time and completion time. But also, um, like you mentioned at your institution, we do have emergency funds for situations that are unforeseen and students find themselves in to really help them to get through a period of time and, and to kind of resolve issues that would otherwise make students maybe withdraw from school because of such circumstances. The only thing I would add to that is if you're going away to college, think about transportation costs. Um, often uh, universities will include transportation costs in their financial aid budget and if you're receiving financial aid, those costs may be covered. But you want to make sure that they're reasonable. You know, can you really get from home to that university for the cost that they've included in that, in that budget? Are you want to going to come home during winter break? Will your parents allow you to come home during winter break? Um, you know, th those costs are non-trivial. Thank you. Um, my being here tonight is um, not intentional. It was actually a very happy accident. Um, I just came back from uh, the airport and I picked up my nephew, Logan. Logan, raise hey, your Logan. hand. Hey, Logan. <laughs> my 15-year-old my nephew got out of Dodge. He's from Boston and uh, those big storms over there. So. Um, <clears throat> I'm the lucky aunt who is actually helping Logan tomorrow get started with his college um, campus tour at Case. So, um, <clears throat> so here we are. You know, I've never been to Happy Dog. I said, Logan, I got a great place. I've heard so many good things about Happy Dog, and teenagers love the food here. Let's go to Happy Dog. And so we're just starting our campus uh, tour a little bit early. So my question to you is, um, <clears throat> We will be on the Case campus all day tomorrow. And um, I do understand that it's very complex. I have three children that have gone through the college process. But in terms of uh, Logan, who's 15, uh, what advice would you have for him tomorrow in terms of focus um, uh, amidst all that complexity that's out there? So to keep it kind of manageable for him and and real for him at the same time? Um, uh, that, that would be my question. Since you'll be on my campus, I should get a chance to answer the question. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, for, for any student, as you're early in the process, uh, what I would encourage you to think about is, is not just the particular institution, but what is it that I can learn about what I, what I like or what I don't like about the characteristics of the institution, the kind of institution. You know, if you spend time on our campus tomorrow um, and you love it, as I know you will, um, <laughs> what, you, what you want to think about is, okay, we're an example of a kind of medium-sized urban university. And if you like our campus, you might want to look at other medium-sized urban universities. If you spend time on our campus and say, oh my word, it's so busy, you know, all these people and traffic and, 
you know, I want to be someplace more peaceful. Well, may, maybe something a little more rural might be appropriate for you. And also remember, you're not choosing a college. Yeah. You know, what, what year will you enter college? Uh, 2022. 2022. Wow. Um, so <laughs> you'll enter in 2022? Yes. Um, you've got lots of time. This isn't about choosing a college. It's, it's about exposure, learning. What are the kinds of questions that I should be asking? What do I respond positively to? What completely creeps me out about the colleges I'm visiting? Nothing on our campus, I promise you. <laughs> I would just say, Logan, uh, ask you a question. Do you know what you want to do the rest of your life? Something with math. Something with math, okay. That's, that's a great subject, and there's a lot you can do with math, actually. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. We're just <laughs> down the street. This is coaching. But ser seriously, it, it's, it's, it's important that you do have some sense of where you're headed. I know you're young, um, but that, that's a big factor in this, too. The place has to feel right. I absolutely agree with Rick on everything he said. But at the end of the day, too, having a sense of where you're headed is really, really important, too. And, and that factoring into the equation is really important too. Because you can pick a place for all the other things, but if that piece isn't right, it's not good. So I'm gonna hand your aunt one of our college selection I guides. I was take notes tomorrow on my way back. <laughs> wow. And I'll just add that we're all down the street from each other. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, take, take a couple away. stops here. All right, next question. <laughs> Hi, so apologies, I did come in late, so apologies if this question has already been addressed, I know. I'm shamed. Um, but with the rise of more te focused technical programs like coding boot camps, financially speaking, um, are they incentivizing or disincentivizing people to go to um, college, community college, and do they provide legitimate or competitive outcomes and benefits? So, so we happen to have a coding boot camp. I don't know if you know that. But we, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's disincentivizing people to go to college. I think if, if those programs are offered, and because technical fields are such high demand, it's really about time to completion and getting into the field. So, so for example, and I just mentioned that we, we happen to have those because we know the competitive edge is that if, if colleges aren't offering them, somebody else will do that. And so I certainly don't think there's any disincentive to it. it it's hard to keep up with those changing industries in a way to, to, to make students think that they should go do this in four years. So should they do it in four years? Could they get the same value in a shorter amount of time and right to the workforce? Absolutely. And so I think it really kind of starts with the comment that, that Robert mentioned, whether or not college is if it's for everybody. Because if you can get what you need to really still advance what you want to do um, from a career perspective, it's certainly an opportunity to do that. But certainly be still be mindful and conscious about where you spend your time and resources. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You, you want to address that question? Okay. All right, I think we are, we are out of time. Oh. Yes, we are out of time. Um, so we thank our panelists today, Rick, Rob, and Angela. We thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. <laughs>